The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. How do you propose to solve this minor problem? Simple logic will suffice. I believe I shall begin by making use of this map. I have the distance and bearing which were provided by Commander Uhura. If we juxtapose our coordinates, we should be able to find our destination. What does it mean, exact change? Good morning, London. It is Thursday, June the 3rd, 2010. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. To black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be Welcome to the show today once again, where, as always, the number to call is 519-661-3600 if you want to join in on any conversations we get going. Our email, as always, feedback at justrightmedia.org. And you can also visit our archive site of all our past shows at www.justrightmedia.org. And, of course, Robert Vaughn is not with us today, but will return next week, making this actually only the second time this year I've been able to get a show in on my, myself. And so I'm here by myself today, along with our operator, Ashley Bushfield. Ashley, this is the way it used to be all the time <laughs> for the first few years of the show. But uh, I'm using this opportunity today, I guess, to do something I've neglected to do for a while, and I do it kind of on an annual basis. And that's later in the show. I want to take a look at left and right and uh, basically left and right viewed rightly in the sense of why do I say at the beginning of every show, not right wing, just right. And we'll talk a little bit about the labeling of left and right. I want to talk about the F words of poplitics and how many of these words creep into our daily language in the political field and how they kind of mess things up in the way we think about things politically. And also, very briefly, I'm just going to throw this at you. Your name is Peter, and you are Stone. I'll explain what that means, and it has to do with taxation a little later in the show. But first, bus passes. Talk about a... This, this might seem like a minor issue, but it illustrates an amazing issue, I think, a larger issue. And this might be the macro, or microcosm of the macrocosm I'll be dealing with later on in the show. You know, people always say there's no honest politicians out there. They always lie to us, and they never really tell us the truth. And you have to wonder after a while, whose fault is that, really? And I think this little flap about uh, bus passes being turned in by bus commissioners here in London was a classic example of why we really can't get honest politicians. And I'm going to put it to you this way. We don't want them. London Free Press, Commissioners Face Ridership Flap, uh, May 28, 2010, written by Chip Martin, reads as follows. Must one ride the bus to rule London Transit? So insists Pat Honeyford, president of Local 741 of the Amalgamated Transit Union. But one commissioner, Councillor Harold Usher, one of two appointed by City Council, disagrees. Commissioners must be regular riders. Usher and other, and other commissioners turned in their photo ID cards at a commission meeting this week after learning they'd be 
considered taxable benefits of $972 per year. The three citizen members of the commission, Gary Williams, Russ Monteith, and Frank Berry, who receive an annual stipend of $4,300 apiece, did the same. Commission General Jerry, uh, Commissioner General Manager um, Larry Ducharme sorry, conceded the optics of the move were poor, but insisted that, quote, this has nothing to do with support of public transit, end quote. Deputy Mayor Tom Gosnell poo-pooed critics of transit commissioners for turning in their passes. He said the important question is whether commissioners have been advocates for, for public transit. And they sure have, he said. And that's the article by Chip Martin on the 28th. On the 29th, interesting letter to the editor uh, by Randy Caron. LTC commissioner display arrogance about bus riders, it reads, reads the headlines. Who, in referring to the article just mentioned, writes, quote, LTC commissioners are very public figures. The LTC is a community service in constant need of promotion. It's bad enough that they don't ride the bus, but they aren't even willing to pretend for appearance sake. It's my contention that if a commissioner is too busy and or too important to actually ride the bus, then they are probably too busy and too important to deal with the issues and challenges of the average Joe. And that was uh, the letter writer in the free press. And there's been others. And, of course, I got involved in a little bit of a debate over on uh, CJBK AM radio last week with Andy Utman where I took him to task for basically saying the same kinds of things. And, you know, really, you know, here we see prime examples of why voters get the politicians that they do. With the media leading the charge, whenever somebody in a political or official position utters some kind of truth of some sort or behaves rationally for a change, they object. Everybody objects. How dare you tell us the truth, says the public. We want you to keep up appearances, irrespective of the reality of the situation. Therefore, is it not we, the public, that are in effect saying no honest politicians allowed or no rationality allowed? And the priority is the optics. Avoid the reality and keep up the phony belief about buses and about municipal services in general. You know, it's a very funny situation because, you know, I would have done the same thing as Harold Usher and the commissioners as well. Got to remember, Harold Usher, Usher represents city council on the LTC commission. He does not represent the LTC on city council. As such, he should be an ardent critic of LTC operations as one would think it would be his job to minimize the impact of the LTC on taxpayers. But instead, and this is weird, he's promoting the LTC. Now maybe I'm looking at this backwards, but I just don't believe it's the city council's job or responsibility to promote public transit. Provide it for those who need it, maybe. If you believe that's something you should be doing, I don't think so. But even there, if you're doing that, you shouldn't be promoting it. Every rider who takes the bus, for example, inflicts some taxpayer somewhere with a significant portion of the cost of that ride. These are not rides being paid for by 100%. The taxpayer pays more the more that people use the bus system. So why would they be encouraging people to use a bus system? The London Transit Commission provides what is essentially a monopoly service. And this not only protects it from competition, but also from any objective way to measure its value to the community, or even to measure wages and salaries paid to everyone from the top to the bottom of the organization. Unless you have competition of some sort, 
Um, there's no way to ever compare whether you're getting value for the dollar, which is one of those myths we hear in, in taxation all the time. Are taxpayers getting value for the dollar? No, you're not getting value for a tax dollar. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a tax. <laughs> we'll have to talk about that a little later. But I have to ask, why should well-paid, at least for what they do, um, politicians, commissioners, whoever, who also have expense accounts quite frequently, even get a free free bus pass. Does that make sense? Why does the media insist that we, the taxpayers, continue to be ripped off? And then, of course, what about the evil of the tax itself in the face of the evidence that it kills productivity and incentive? You know, I used to work as a, as a payroll clerk, if you want to put it that, one of my duties as, uh, as an accountant at a company called Canada Permanent. And I used to uh, look after the real estate department. And I remember real estate agents who refused to accept their prizes for outstanding sales and achievement if the prize was uh, taxable in any way. I mean, who needs a quote, quote unquote, free TV or a free VCR or whatever might have been given away from time to time when you probably already had those needs met and there, there's an additional cost to accepting the gift? It now becomes a non-value, since, given a choice, the recipient would not choose something they do not need or will not use. Normally, we would call such a thing waste. That's the word that's usually used. But apparently, we expect our LTC commissioners to waste a service that they won't use and, on top of that, pay a tax to have the service. Talk about a bold-faced appeal to sacrifice just for the common good. you know, I heard some people say, yeah, I don't care if they use it, but they should pay the tax on it. And I'm going, why? Why? What's the driving force behind that? It's not going to change anything. Now, for his part, Harold Usher put himself in a position, I think, of being utterly incapable of defending his opinion about public transit or his support of it, for that matter. But not because he turned in his free bus pass. After having made it quite clear and he was quite honest about this, that the bus system is not always the most convenient or the most practical way to get around, Mr. Usher went on to promote the usage of the bus system on the grounds that it would cut down on traffic and it would reduce CO2 and a whole bunch of other feel-good green kind of stuff. And that's where he lost his credibility with me. But now consider how the media reacted to this and consider the choices and the options here. Number one... Harold Usher tells the truth and gives reasons why he doesn't take the bus, saying that, geez, I wouldn't take a boat or a plane just to get next door or something like that, and the media chastises him. Number two, Harold Usher shovels the BS, although he himself might believe it, that we should be taking the bus for green reasons, and not one person in the media calls him up on it. No, in fact, most media members would pat Usher on the back for this BS stuff. You know... One should never be choosing transportation options based on considerations other than the transportation itself. That's why you have it. And remember, this city also has its anti-car philosophy going in full gear. So, you know, that's part, well, part of the reason that they're pushing the buses. They want people to get out of their cars and get on the bus, even though that's going to cost everybody more money. So is it any wonder why our politicians just can't possibly be honest with us, even if they wanted to? It seems the public just won't, won't stand for it. So, you know, it seems to me that, you know, it's rather self-evident that buses are the least efficient for most people and most efficient for the least people. But the people using the buses are the only ones in a position to determine which is best for them. 
And we don't need our politicians out encouraging people to abandon the transportation choices they've already made, which obviously meets their needs, in favor of taxpayer-financed transportation that raises taxes with each additional rider on the system. It's not a system capable of paying for itself, and that's the problem with the whole bus system. I've already talked at length on this show about how I think a public uh, transit system should be operating. I think we should deregulate. I think we should let anybody be a cab driver with proper checks and licensing, of course, but uh, it is a city's property. They can determine who, who, who rides on the streets, but it should not be a closed shop, such as it were. Caught one little uh, article here or, or letter to the editor from uh, um, just uh, June 1st. Uh, Patrick Watson writes to the Free Press, give me a break. Why is everybody giving commissioners a hard time overturning in their bus ta- passes? I would have done the same thing, he says. Lighten up a little. And in another example of somebody having to resign for telling the truth, we see Germany's president has resigned, Horst Kohler, because he unexpectedly mentioned in a radio interview on a return trip uh, to Afghanistan this month that German military action abroad also served economic interests. He said a country like Germany with heavy reliance on foreign trade must know in emergencies military intervention is necessary to uphold our interests, like free trade routes. And, for example, to prevent regional instabilities, which could have a negative impact on our chances in terms of trades, jobs, and income. And, of course, opposition politicians accused him of gunboat diplomacy. But, you know, this is again like starting at Chapter 2, as we were talking about last week when Paul Lambert was here. Why is the, Why are they intervening? There's an intervention in something because somebody else is using violence or force. And so nobody questions that. If you're going to cut off trade by using violence, then you have a right to militarily intervene. But they don't want to talk about that. And so that's one of the reasons we get the politicians that we do. We want them to keep up the pretenses. We want them to believe in the same social systems we believe in, even if they don't work. And that just opens the door to all kinds of problems. Going to take a quick break now, and when we come back, we'll talk about one of those problems a little bit, and that's taxation, one of the results of our thinking this way and always thinking about majority rule and, and uh, you know, ruling for the group rather than for individuals. We'll be back right after this. Now tell me, sir, what do you do for a living? <laughs> I bribe a dust. You bribe a dust? I dust a bribe. Dust a bribe. <laughs> Oh, I see. You're a bus driver. Is that it? Well, thank you very much, Mr. Cranman. You know, I have a great deal of respect for bus drivers. It's always amazed me how you fellows who have this tremendous responsibility and the, the, the tremendous number of people that you have to deal with and the big machine, how you manage to remain so courteous and kind and considerate all the time. Yes, sir. Well, of course, there are exceptions. For example... The other day, I was standing on Madison Avenue in the rain, waiting for a bus, and as this bus driver bore down on me, I signaled for him to stop. And you know, instead of stopping, he went right by, went through a puddle and splashed mud all over me. Was that you? some of the others and we decided that it would be more beneficial to conduct the blood tests in the field. So I want you to go to LA with the rest of the group. Whatever the majority wants. You don't seem to hold majority rule in very high regard. 
If something's wrong, it's wrong. Majority rule doesn't have anything to do with it. But it goes straight to the core purpose of our group, which is to survive. You'll grant me that. Talking about taxes, and by the way, 519-661-3600 is a number you can call if you want to reach us. I said earlier that, uh, you know, your name is Peter and you are Stone, and this will make some sense if you recall the saying, quote, robbing Peter to pay Paul, and the phrase, blood from stone. I think the first is the principle of current government spending, robbing Peter to pay Paul. We hear that all the time, don't we? The second is the principle of our current taxation. Basically, blood from stone. Because, you know, one question no one ever asks is, what's the limit of taxation? How far, how much can they take? Can they take 5% of your income, 10%, 20%, 30%? We're at 50 now. Is 60 a limit? Is 70, 80? I've heard some socialists say, yeah, I'll pay 100% if the government guarantees me a good living, etc., etc. So, really, there is no limit to government spending in any official way other than what they know that they can get out of the citizenry without them screaming too loud or literally falling over and dying. And that's why I say your name is Peter and you are stone because you're always the Peter that's being robbed to pay the Paul, even if you think you're Paul. You know, in, ad- in advocating government spending, most supporters see themselves as Pauls, not as Peters. But, of course, the joke is on them. In advocating government taxation, most supporters think the other guy is paying more than they are. And together you put these two attitudes together and you've got this perfect storm for an ever-increasing government spending programs, increasing taxation, and of course decreasing services from the very governments that are always raising our prices. Debts and deficits are merely part of this equation and not separate from it. Today's debt is tomorrow's taxation added to whatever additional taxes will exist quote, end quote, tomorrow. So I'll ask it again. Just what's the maximum limit of your income that governments can take away from you? You know, at one time, 5% would have been considered unthinkable, just absolutely unthinkable. Today, we're over 50%. We're in definite slavery territory now, and modern-day tax slavery is essentially no different from what it was in Roman times when the decline was well underway. There's always that, uh, you hear that saying, I've used it before, a fine is a tax for doing bad, while a tax is a fine for doing good. This particularly applies to income tax and to property taxes, and not so much to consumption taxes, um, because with the income tax, you're being fined for actually being productive, and with property tax, you're being fined for either improving your property or at least just for owning it. And of course, you don't own your property if you're constantly being taxed for it. You basically are renting. Kevin Godet of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation has called the HST the right tax at the wrong time. You know, it could be the right tax at the right time if at the same time as introducing the HST, income taxes and property taxes were ended or eliminated or phased out. Because these two latter taxes destroy the very foundations of a free and capitalistic society. And in a capitalist society, uh, economics and the state are separate, which is not to say that the state cannot tax in some way, in some legitimate way. But that's about all I have to say on, on, on the tax situation, per se. What I have coming up next, and I sure hope we don't have a problem with the next clip, I hope it's okay, <laughs> because what you're about to hear uh, for the next several minutes, um, both before and after our next break, and that's why I'm breaking a little earlier, is original material delivered and professionally recorded here at the University of Western Ontario on July 24th, 2000, almost 10 years ago now.
And speaking to an international audience gathered under the auspices of the International Society for Individual Liberty, ISIL, for which I happen to be the official registrar. The person you are about to hear is Professor John Hospers, the first ever U.S. presidential candidate for the Libertarian Party back in 1972. Dr. Hospers, unlike uh, many of today's libertarians, explicitly rejected the libertarian notion of, quote, competing governments and agency of force, and he said so right there at the conference, and he gave good reasons for doing so. But that's not the focus of his discussion that I will be bringing to your attention today. Dr. Hospers was a close associate of Ayn Rand for a short time. His perspective as a seasoned veteran of the American political scene was a haunting one, to say the least. I've been waiting kind of a long time for an opportunity, appropriate opportunity, to let you hear this incredibly understated, yet deeply compelling presentation. This is just a little piece from it. He spoke for the better part of an hour. Definitely one of the best, I thought, at the week-long conference. Now, bear in mind that what you're about to hear occurred before 9-11, before Barack Obama, before McGinty and bans on everything from handheld cell phones in cars to sales of water bottles in schools, and of course, all the Green Movement and the extremely statist policies of the Green Movement. And uh, when we return on the other side of Dr. Hosper's presentation and the break, we'll take a look at why we start this show every week with making it clear that we're not, quote, right-wing, but just right. So say, stay tuned, bear with us, and this is what you're about to hear is Dr. John Hosper's back on July 24th, 2007, recorded here at the University of Western Ontario. Now to my main and somewhat more manageable topic, I hope, namely the relation of the individual to the state, what it's supposed to be like, what's gone wrong, how to fix it for the rest of my time. Two centuries ago, the U.S. was as libertarian as any country on this earth. Its constitution was as elegantly simple as any document could be. De Tocqueville said it, he could explain it to his readers in a couple of sentences. It listed certain powers that the federal government would have, excluding all the others, and would be permitted to do nothing else except what was mentioned. And then it separated those powers among three branches of government. If Congress enacted laws going beyond that, the Supreme Court would strike them down. The court did strike down a lot of things. Flood relief and other measures. The Constitution did not grant such powers. 1890, Grover Cleveland vetoed a $10,000 federal grant for drought relief, saying there is no constitutional power to do this. Decades later, a federal highway program only got through Congress by being labeled national defense. The radicals of 1910 despaired of achieving socialism as long as the Constitution remained. We must have a new Constitution, they said, if we were to institute these changes, and of course they were right. But Roosevelt changed all that, you know the story. There's endless debate today, for instance, about national health laws, how many people should be covered, for what conditions, and so on. What's seldom asked is by what authority the federal government in the United States has to do with any of these things. And the same for Social Security, Medicare, federal aid to education, public works projects, regulation to business, subsidies for the arts, etc. Example, 
The Fourth Amendment prohibits secret searches. Justice Marshall, the first justice of the Supreme Court, feared that some future technology would be such that papers could be read from secret drawers without the drawers ever being opened. Well, today, of course, that's happening even without any new technology. One new bill before Congress on it, police can enter a home, search everything in it, and tell nobody. It's hidden in what's called the methamphetamine bill. And there are secret wiretap provisions in this year's 2,000-page omnibus budget bill. They'll probably all sail through, mostly without being read. It goes on. Read James Bouvard's Lost Rights. It's one, one example out of many. Thousands of regulations with the force of law coercively limit the, the daily activities of anyone who conducts any kind of business. Or a farmer is not permitted to farm any portion of his property which may contain a kangaroo rat because it's an endangered species courtesy of the Environmental Protection Agency and so on and so on. 20,000 pages of regulations can't even be remembered by their own enforcers, the EPA, but whose victims are made to suffer for the slightest infringement or misinterpretation. Or one can read Walter Olson's book, The Death of Common Sense, which is an exposure of the legal system and its corruption and other books of his later and by other people. There's no lack of books on all these things. The information's there. Only the liberal press isn't reporting it. And to a public that doesn't read very much anymore anyway, the books don't make very much impact on the general public. And so, the disease of centralized control had not yet spread that far in Abraham Lincoln's day. But in a speech at the Springfield Lyceum made in 1838, when he was only 29 years old, Lincoln laments, and here I'm going to quote Lincoln briefly. He said to his audience, the field of glory is harvested and the crop is already appropriated, but new reapers will arise and they too will seek a field Men of ambition and talent will continue to spring up, and when they do, they will naturally seek the gratification of their ruling passion, as others have done before them. The question is, can that gratification be found in supporting and maintaining an edifice that has been erected by others? No, said Lincoln. Men of ambition, he said, will not be content with a seat in Congress or a governorship. Think you these places would satisfy an Alexander, a Caesar, a Napoleon? No, towering genius disdains a beaten path. It seeks regions unexplored. It sees no distinction in adding, no, adding story to story on the monuments of fame erected to the memory of others. It denies that it is glory to serve under any uh, regime. It scores to, scorns to tread in the footsteps of any predecessor. It thirsts for distinction and it will have it, whether at the expense of emancipating others or enslaving free men. Unquote. That is to the Springfield Lyceum. Unquote. If such a Napoleonic figure arose in America, Lincoln said, it would be a mortal danger to American institutions, and the public would have to be sufficiently firm in its resolution and sufficiently attached to the principles of individual freedom to frustrate such a person's designs. I can't help thinking. I don't think anyone suspected eight years ago how Lincoln's fears would be realized when Clinton came to the throne. A psychopath with no conscience, no real concern for his country, 
viewed with contempt by his own armed forces, interested only in exerting and prolonging his own power by whatever means possible, silencing or eliminating his personal and political enemies, and all with such aplomb that most, that most of the subjects he betrayed were still singing his praises or else terrified into silence and inaction. That's the way it is now. Anyway. Lincoln was right about that, of course. It's human nature to strike out on your own and declare your independence lay down your predecessor's achievement. This is disturbing, but true. But there's another question. Why do the changes always have to be unidirectional? They always seem to consist of more power to the state and less to the individual. Why? Well, there's a part of the story. Some people have more and some less, and many other people find this unfair. In a democracy, majority rules, there are more have-nots than haves, so the majority votes to take away from the haves a portion of what they have earned and give it in return for votes to those who have not. It doesn't take long for those who have not earned it to be told that they have a right to it, and it doesn't take long either for those who have produced the wealth of the nation and given the workers employment to lose their incentive to work harder and produce more. And so they produce less, and then as production falters, there's less to distribute among more and more people. And the more is taxed away from the producers, the less they produce, and the greater the outcry for more goods. And after several generations of this looting, here is a typical result. A senator gets a bill passed for some ostensibly humanitarian cause, such as teaching retarded kids how to read or taking them on vacation during the summer at public expense. The public considers these good causes. These are voted into law. Uh, most of the money is wasted, diverted to uses that don't have anything to do with the original bill, or employ the author's friends and create elaborate new offices in which nothing much gets done. But the senator gets a reputation for humanitarianism. Uh, the distinction between humanitarianism with your own money and with other people's money apparently still escapes most people. All these programs mean increased taxes, and they bring everyone's standard of living down. Most Americans, I think, however it is elsewhere, have very little conception of how much higher their own standard of living would have been and how much more they could have done for their own family and their own children if, not, if these busybody bills had not been passed. And so, bit by bit, more of the nation's economy is handled by government bureaucracies, which consume the fruits of a nation's labor and place it in the eager hands of the totalitarian left. And now let's say a political candidate is giving a speech. What are you going to do for me if elected? The audience wants to know. They want to be sure that they get more out of the federal treasury than they put in in taxes. Any politician that tries to resist that trend is lost. If he says that he'll reduce the size of government, well, this strikes the average voter as a vanilla-flavored promise, one that doesn't give any special aid. And this... <clears throat> 
which is probably the most important promise a politician can give to a voter, but it's considered a nothing. During my campaign, when I was asked repeatedly, what will you do for me if elected? And my stock answer was, I'll leave you alone. Okay. Uh, most people weren't very impressed by that. They, they thought this was a cop-out. You see, the public has already been corrupted by the game of if you give it to me and take it away from somebody else, and the candidate has to go along with that game in order to win the next election. Even the voter who sees how things are going has already surrendered too much of his tax money, and he's more anxious than ever to get hold of some of it himself. And meanwhile, as the economic crisis worsens, a leader emerges who promises to solve the nation's problems as long as they entrust their fate into his hands. Uh, Plato said that democracy in practice regularly leads to dictatorship. And that's the end of the line, in which people no longer have any rights against the government, but become its whimpering subjects, hoping that those in power will not treat him too badly. Wow. Professor John Hosper is speaking here at the university back in 2000. Welcome back. I'm Bob Metz, and you're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, 519-661-3600, the number to call if you want to join in on the conversation. So, you know, I listen to Dr. Hospers, and that's just, that isn't even the best part of his speech, and I won't, you won't even be hearing that today, but you'll be hearing a lot of it on future shows as well. You know, some of the things he brought up really speak to the theme today. I guess you might want to call it a public corrupted, the things that we expect from our politicians, and when, then we expect them to be honest to us. How can you have an honest politician who you're asking to steal on your behalf? Is there such a thing as an honest thief? I haven't met one yet. <laughs> I don't know. Who moves a political direction? You know, it's mostly the left, and I'll explain shortly why, what I mean by left and right. In Canada, that generally means the NDP, the political incarnation, or unions and labor leaders like Sid Ryan, which would be the uh, labor component, the philosophical incarnation. And basically, unfortunately, all enacted through liberal and conservative policies alike. You know, am I left or right wing, left wing or right wing? Well, I wasn't born right, that's for sure. I don't think my political awareness started until I was well into my late 20s and early 30s. I wasted my vote on all of the parties at some time, and yes, I've even voted NDP, as I've mentioned before. And, but you know, I was always left with the situation. Where, where, where am I sitting on the, uh, on, the left, on, the, on the relative left and right scale? Because there is a left and right relative, and there's a left and right absolute. And, and on this show, we concern ourselves more with the absolute. But you can see the problems that you run into with left and right when you look at it issue by issue. Uh, take, for example, abortion. The left wing wants to subsidize abortion and expand it. Ignatieff is a perfect example of that going on. The right wing, of course, wants to ban abortion. And that's Harper on the other side of the coin. And, of course, to me, the proper issue is to be, take a freedom stance. Don't ban, don't subsidize. Nobody's going to argue with each other, are they? They're not stealing from each other. Nobody's preventing each other. There's no reason to fight. But as long as you have the left wing or the right wing approach, you've got to fight. You've got a conflict. Because the basic philosophy of the wings is to force their philosophy on the rest of us beyond and above anything that we would consider living in a free society. And that's a big decision you have to make. You have to decide, do you want to live in a free society or not? It's not, there's no middle ground, and I'll get to that in a sec too. 
But take Sunday shopping. The left wing would ban it, and if not, they have labor protections, and you see that done through the NDP unions and liberals. The right wing would like to ban Sunday shopping too, but for, as a religious day of rest, or as a business monopoly restricting competition. Whereas the freedom approach would be to treat Sunday like any other day of the week as far as the legalities and, and, and politics of it go. Why should there be an argument about it? Uh, you know, it's just the same issue. Pornography, the left wing would like to ban it. You get that mostly from the feminists. The right wing would like to ban it, but it's more of a religious bent or a social bent. And, of course, the proper issue is freedom of speech. The issue is always consent. And kids don't count when in an issue like that because they're not old enough to consent. Most people see the Conservative Party in their country, whether it's Canada, Britain, U.S., or Europe, as being on the right or right wing. Most people would see their respective liberal parties as, you know, New Democrat, New Democrat, Labour, whatever you call it, as being on the left or left wing. But what being left or right actually means in reality is quite another thing since relative to a fixed reality, reality doesn't change, both left and right wing ideologies drift in directionless, purposeless, not intentionally towards any ultimate left or right, but always away from freedom and towards tyranny. And that's the left. Sad fact is when today's typical politicians or parties call themselves left-wing or right-wing, they want us to believe they have principles that make them different from each other. When in fact, they don't have any such principles. And worse, they're not any different from each other in any essential or substantive way. One party wants to steal the money out of your left pocket, the other one wants to steal it out of your right pocket. From my point of view, all of Canada's and Ontario's officially registered parties, with the exception of Freedom Party, are on the left. In the absolute world of reality, all fundamentals are digital. It's a digital world out there, black and white, whether you like it or not. There are no grays. Because whenever you get down to essentials, and an essential gets down to the point where you are confronted with two alternatives. The most basic one is life and death. But it's just like your computer. No matter how marvelous and complex its functions appear on your screen, when you get right down to the machine language of your computer, right down to the fundamentals, you'll come up with a magic number of two. It's a simple binary code. It's on or off, positive or negative, up or down, or in politics, we might say, left or right. There are no third or, you know, third ways or moderate ways or center views on fundamental issues. There is no center. That's a political superstition. In the relative world of politics, those who like to think of themselves in some imaginary center of the political spectrum are deluding themselves. There are no such positions on any single given issue. So does the fact that you may be totally right-wing on one issue and totally left-wing on another issue put you in some imaginary center? I don't think so. When somebody in politics says their politics is in the center, what they mean is that on some issues they're on the left, while on other issues they're on the right. Both liberals and conservatives like to be considered in the center. Everybody does. Philosophically, they would most likely be pragmatists, and the pe those are the people who've paved the road to tyranny for the left. And, you know, there's that old proverb, which I'll paraphrase with the saying, you know, when the body politic becomes corrupt, it's the center where all the decay is. <laughs> so a quick look at left and right, just a quick you know, almost a couple sentences just to, I can't get into this in great detail, but if you were to draw a line straight down a page, and on the left you would put 
left, and on the right you would put right. And you would begin, we'd have to start back with almost the history of philosophy, back to Plato and Aristotle. And on the left you'd have Plato, on the right you'd have Aristotle. And the main difference between those two philosophers at Plato, with Plato it was a primer, primacy of consciousness, that he, he believed the mind can exist independent of the body, which led to a lot of religious beliefs, including the Catholic Church and life after death and things like that. Aristotle, on the other hand, believed in the primacy of existence. He said, listen, reality exists independent of the mind. When you're dead, reality continues. It doesn't depend on your mind to continue. And so basically you can say the metaphysics of the left is the supernatural or the unnatural or beyond nature, however you want to look at it, mind over matter, fantasy perhaps, whereas the right is reality, all that exists, what is natural, and matter over mind. In other words, you can't make something go away just by wishing it. You can use your mind to work on it and change it, but you can't just wish it away. On the left, you would have under epistemology, which is the means of how one acquires knowledge, various forms of faith, mysticism, literalism, whim, knowledge without evidence, just statements and wants and needs. On the right, you would have reason with principle, logic, and value, knowledge based on evidence. If you go to the ethics section, on the left, you would be having ethics would be determined by what you do for others, altruism, sacrifice. Uh, you know, the beneficiary of your moral actions, or what we call moral, if you're very left, is what you do for others. Whereas on the right, it is the self, and its responsibility, and its values, and the beneficiary of moral action is the agent, the person who's acting. This was one of the reasons Ayn Rand said that, that you see a decline in morality in a society that's operating under altruism. If everything you do that's called moral isn't for you, but for somebody else, then you're not going to be very moral very long, and you're going to always have to count on somebody else being moral to you to give you the things that you want from them, and that never happens, does it? It just doesn't happen. And yet, People think it does. You can steal from other people and make them be that way, and that becomes socialism or fascism, which is just another brand of socialism. Interesting, I saw an insurance company ad said, quote, when people do the right thing, it's called being responsible. And I said, wow, that's a heavy thing for an insurance company ad to say. Now, of course, under politics on the left, what would you have? You'd have group rights. On the right, you'd have individual rights. On the left, group rights would be a an inequality of rights and, it, and responsibilities, which is basically what happens. As soon as the government starts dividing you up into groups, it starts giving one group a benefit at the expense of another group. And the irony is, it's not about different people. It might be the same people in, in five different groups. You might be a farmer, you might be a housewife, you might be a whole bunch of categories. You could be five categories and they could be taxing one against the other and you don't know what's happening. You can't figure out your tax return or why they, they charge you the things that you do. You're not in control of that. That's one of the reasons I hate income taxes so much. And of course, um, with individual rights on the right, you have equality of rights. Everyone's equal under the law. And very importantly, you have the right to self-defense, whereas under the left, you do not. There is no right to individual self-defense. And that's one of the things that uh, I think John Hosper has talked about in his speech. I don't know if you've heard that part yet. And of course, um, instead of consent being the social principle, which is what's on the right, and voluntarism, you have force and duty and consensus and, and prohibitions on the left. Uh, the right is about volunteering, and the left is, is, I heard one person say, well, I was voluntold <laughs> what to do. Like, you're, you're told to volunteer. 
In other words, you're forced to do things. So, you know, it's important to note, though, that in this context, you know, a lot of people say, and libertarians say this too, that government is force. It's not true. Government is not force. Force is what is governed. I think if more of us looked at government that way, we might think, we might understand better what government is. Government's a gun. G is for government. G is for gun. And when you go out and anything you do with a government policy, you are doing with a gun. Would you go out and help your neighbor because he was sick or in need of help with a gun by going to your other neighbors and robbing them and saying, well, i got to help Joe next door? You might get away with that once, but what if a whole bunch of people get sick and everybody's out there with their guns robbing everybody else? You can see what happens. Under economics on the left, we have a mixed or a command economy. On the right, we have capitalism, which means, by the way, a complete separation of the state from economics. And um, whereas the mixed or command economy means state controls of economic choice and of economics. Boy, I'll tell you, the things we can get into. On the right, you've got voluntary spending. On the, right, on the left, you've got force spending. All force spending, by the way, destroys wealth. Every, every penny spent by the government destroys wealth because it's not voluntary. Voluntary spending is the only thing that creates wealth every time. Simple example. Somebody's got, I've said it before, somebody's got a newspaper, so you've got a dollar price tag on it, and you've got a dollar in your pocket. Under a voluntary system, you wouldn't give them that dollar unless the newspaper was worth more to you than the dollar was at the time. Similarly, he wouldn't give you the newspaper unless the dollar was worth more to him than the newspaper at the time. So when you do that exchange, both sides benefit. Wow, that's called wealth creation. You could have just one dollar circulating back and forth. Back and forth, back and forth. Not even have more than one dollar in the economy and have wealth creation, as long as it was voluntary. Now consider the alternative. One side is not voluntary. I don't want to give you a dollar for that paper, but you make me pay it anyway. What have I gained? Nothing. I got something I don't value, which is a subjective thing, and I had to pay something I did value, a dollar. I lose both ways. The other person gains both ways. That's why you cannot have force or compulsion or government control in any form of an economy and expect that economy to stay afloat. No government in the world understands this in the way I'm describing it now. A lot of economists do, but they sure wouldn't talk that way. You know, there's a difference between redistributing wealth and earning it, and that's another thing that's different between the left and right. On the left, you have taxation and redistribution. On the right, you have earning and trade. You know, taxation is basically theft to the degree that it's just stealing and taking without consent, especially on the property and on, on income taxes. There's no exchange of services there that people believe in. Oh, I'm, I'm paying for the roads. I'm paying for this. I'm paying for that nonsense. Let me see your contract. Let me see your contract for, for, for health care. Have you got, a, have you got a, a, you know, an OHIP plan? Do you know what you're covered for? Do you know what they don't cover? There's no such thing. They can change it overnight. Tomorrow they can tell you, oh, sorry, we're, we're quitting this program. It's done, even though you paid all your life. So I guess the bottom line there is to say that wealth cannot be created through compulsory spending. It can only be destroyed. And then again, we could get into so many other left and right issues. In aesthetics, it's interesting, someone brought up to me, says, if you notice that on the left, aesthetics is more about disorder 
asymmetry, entropy, you know, where, whereas on the right it's more order. For an example, you might have Mona Lisa being more traditional, and modern art, very, very, uh, you know, not symmetrical in a lot of ways, disassociated patterns, floating abstractions and purpose, whereas the order of art has meaningful pattern and relationships and talks about those things. And of course, on the left, you have talk of destiny and determinism, whereas on the right, you're talking about choice and free will. On the left, might is right. On the right, right is might. As Isabel Patterson so well explained, she said Rome didn't get, wasn't a great mighty um, empire because it happened to have great ports and great armies and stuff. It had those things because it understood how to put an empire together. We still work on Roman law today. That's how good that was put together. And of course, but just because something may, may be a law doesn't make it right. The entire political spectrum that we operate in has moved from an Aristotelian base over to the left on the Platonic base. And that's where we are with basically all of the major parties, all the major thinking in the world. And it sounds like we're heading down the same path as we did, um, you know, just before World War II. Something bad is coming in Europe, you can tell. And, uh, you know, the Greek crisis and the Euro and all these attempts are just Ponzi schemes and rip-off from top to bottom, all of these plans that governments are trying to control economies with, when in fact they could be doing a lot of good if, if they would only stick to the proper function of government, which is to protect our freedom of choice and not to restrict it. going to leave you with that, and when we come back after this, we'll talk about some of the F-words in politics. It's the signs of such approaching centralization of power that I dread and watch for the most. A certain amount of regulation, bad as it is, I suppose we can live with if we work harder to make up the government's, for the government's colossal waste of our resources. But the dictatorship of the bureaucracy, which enacts into law the most trivial and pointless regulations, is something that may soon become irreversible. And that's why I quickly take alarm at what seems at first to be small things. Example. A few months ago, there was a Million Moms March in Washington, officially a protest against killings supposedly caused by gun possession. But let's look ahead. What will be the effect of the legislation they want enacted? It will ensure that if your home is invaded by an armed robber, you'll have no defense against him. The robber is not going to obtain his weapons at your local gun store. It's you who'll be without. Solzhenitsyn records that in the massive roundups of people who were taken to Siberian labor camps, often over 10 million in one year, in one year, 1937, about a fourth of the population of Leningrad were forcibly taken from their homes and shipped to the death camps. If the citizens had been permitted to own their own guns, the massive roundups would not have been possible. The police would have been just too frightened to make these mass arrests. At the very least, the people would have picked off some of them. You can't have the terror of a totalitarian state unless you first disarm the population. At Waco, men from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms seized the Davidians' compound and incinerated those in it. Uh, I don't know what effect the recent Danforth pronouncements will have on that verdict. I don't dare say. Agents of the same bureau, of course, descended on people's houses, shot people if they resisted, on the base of a rumor, often false, that marijuana was being grown on the premises. The case of Randy Weaver, which you all know about, illustrates the point. 
question that arises is what do we do when our supposed protectors are no longer protecting us, but are the uh, but are our uh, aggressors? My doctor in Los Angeles was prepared to comply with the new California Marijuana Initiative, enabling patients with cancer and AIDS to relieve their pain. But federal officials came to his office and reminded him that the federal trumps the state and that if he persisted, they would take away his license to practice medicine. So far, the threat's been effective. It's not violence, just the threat. Last April, we saw TV images of federal agents seizing uh, Elian Gonzalez. It was reminiscent of Soviet goon squads making, taking masses of people to their deaths. It was only one person, not many, Principle's the same, though. Breaking into your home without permission, taking you and yours away to God knows where, the state flaunting its supremacy over the individual. If it can happen once, it can happen on a larger scale. And that's why it's so frightening. But according to the polls, the majority of Americans agreed with this operation. And there again, that theme back that it's the public that's always making our politicians do what they do. Some of the F-words of politics that I ran into, and this is sort of on a lighter note, but still has its heavier side. Here they are quickly. Freedom, fascism, fashion, faith, force, fantasy, future, fortune, friendly, fasting, free, family, forward, first, and final. And uh, we've talked about a lot of these words already. Of course, there's freedom versus tyranny. Both are conditions. No ideologies or philosophies as such, but the direction in which a society leans is completely determined by its philosophy, often expressed in terms of a culture. Fascism, we've talked about. Fashion. Now, why do I say fashion? Well, you know, it's amazing how many people are willing to throw out some of the most critical structures and principles of democracy, law, and citizenship. Why? Just because it's new and fashionable. But here's a fact of the matter. Since the time of Plato and Aristotle, uh, the basic issues, you know, there's been nothing new. They've always been the same. There's nothing new in that regard. It's always the same. And, of course, we have faith versus reason. Talked about that. Force versus consent. Fantasy versus reality. Future versus past. You keep being told we have to sacrifice something today for a benefit tomorrow. And with regard to the past, I guess the lesson is that we never learn from history. Fortune versus poverty. Make the rich pay. Guess who the rich are? You. <laughs> the upper class, the middle class, the lower class, and the poor. And none of these groups actually exist except relative to each other. Friendly. There's one you don't expect. I've heard the term friendly fascism more than once. I remember Mark Emery used it to describe Canada's enforcement of cannabis laws, whereas America's policies on pot were definitely not friendly but hostile. But however you package it, all advocacy of government growth takes place on a friendly face. They promise security from responsibility, etc., etc., etc. Fasting versus consuming. Call it the green devolution with the real aim to cut production. Free versus value. I heard that statement, if you think health care is expensive now, just wait till it's free, was a common warning before the enactment of virtually every free health care system. But there are simply no sound economic principles on which any free service can be based. And there's family versus the individual, one of the pillars of conservatism, which we'll talk about later. Then there's forward, which is called progressive and socialist, you know, versus backward, which is really forward or the right thing to do. 
And of course, the big thing, the big F word in politics is first, and that has to do with winning. And it's always first versus principle. I can't tell you how many times I get told that a party of principle can never get elected, ever. But in actual fact, what a party believes or stands for is close to being irrelevant in terms of getting elected. Have you ever actually looked at the philosophies and policies of the current parties in, in the parliament and legislature? Like, yikes. You'd have to be a party that favored child pornography, rape, kidnapping, violence in the streets, and something like faith funding before your party would be disqualified from voters' consideration for voting. Ontarians have even voted outright for communists through the Ontario legislature. Who or what gets elected depends on two things. One, the popularity of the incumbent, and two, the ability of the contender to knock the incumbent off his perch. Hence the phrase, voting for the lesser of two evils, which of course is always evil. There's no lesser about it. To admit that you're voting for evil, even in its lesser form, is to acknowledge the harm that would be done by the candidate or party so labeled. Lesser or greater, voting for evil is still evil. And why? Because it closes the door on good. Where does the concept of good fit into a system that's based on evil versus evil? Nowhere, I'm afraid. And then final is the other F word, and final versus never. That's my final decision on a particular issue, says a politician. Well, final never means never. It's more like a friendly way of saying, shut up, I don't want to talk about this anymore. And if a politician means never, then he'll use the word, but he'll never mean it. <laughs> and that's my final word on the subject for today. So I guess we've got to go until we come back next week. We hope you will join us again as we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, you know what to do. Be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. And there's the question of through tickets. Through tickets. If you want to commute from Henley to the city... You have to buy one British Rail ticket to Paddington and then buy an underground ticket to the bank. And have you ever seen a combined bus and railway timetable? Or ever seen a, a bus timetable in a railway station? Oh, has a bus driver ever seen a bus timetable? <laughs> <laughs>